HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Big Green Egg, the world's largest producer of ceramic charcoal grills, and also by Springer Mountain Farms, over 300 family farms raising birds in Georgia's Blue Ridge Mountains. Learn more at BigGreenEgg.com and SpringerMountainFarms.com. Welcome back to Heritage Radio Network. We are about to kick off a very special segment of our live coverage from Charleston Wine and Food. You can see our full schedule at heritageradionetwork.org slash Charleston. Thanks again to our sponsors, uh, Springer Mountain Farms Chicken and Big Green Egg for making it possible for us to come down to the festival and, of course, to the festival itself for setting up this incredible space. Uh, We're in a double teepee, sharing it with Breville Coffee, so we are caffeinated and ready to go. This very special segment is uh, going to be with special guest chef host Rob Newton. And joining him today is Stephen Satterfield. So I'm going to pass the baton over to Rob. And I just want to say thanks for being here with us and have a great time. Cool. Thank you. Thank you, Chef, for joining me. And uh, no one ever probably wants to hear this, but this is my first time doing this. So I'm excited uh, to do this. Thank you. Virgin interviewer, folks. Exactly. Exactly. I wasn't going to say that word, but here we are. All right. Um, We're going to have to talk over the music. Yeah, well, that's all right. That's all right. So let's start off with Charleston and when you got into town and what you're doing and what it's been like so far. Um, I think this might be my seventh time at Charleston Wine and Food, uh, six or seven. And um, it's a great festival. It's like everybody that you know that is a cook in the southeast or beyond is here and there's so many great restaurants, and it's a walkable city, and it's just a really super fun uh, weekend. It's a marathon, too. I mean, you really have to pace yourself. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. For sure. Most events in the South are like that, for sure. Yeah. So it's been a big year for you. You've had last year, um, I bought my book from you, which I love. Um, thank you for signing it. And you did the SFA this fall. So what's it been like, the book tour, and how's it affected work and the restaurants and how's it all how are you making it all happen yeah I think well my book Root to Leaf which is about seasonal cooking and fruits and vegetables mainly it really just helped kind of realize the themes that were already in my cooking by putting it on paper and photographing the work um, and it's it's definitely designed to be a home cooks tool for people that want to shop at farmers markets or just want to eat more fruits and vegetables um 
but I, I feel like it's, it's really um, strengthened the themes in my own life and in my own work. Um, that that's definitely what inspires me is, you know, when you're, when you're a chef and you work with local farms and, and producers that really care about what they do, then you start to see the trends and the patterns and what's happening when, and it's all about the harvest, right? It's all about what's, you know, what's the, what's on their list and what you can, that's the raw materials that we're going to create, you know, food from. And so it's it's wonderful to to be in the Atlanta area and work with so many great producers that are just incredible at growing vegetables and grains and everything else and we're just in a fertile area that's it's you know we have a huge farmers market scene in Atlanta and it really just contributes to the ability for us to to cook with a, a wide palette of ingredients for sure yeah two part question one is how it's sort of like a chicken and egg kind of thing. Like when you were writing the book and going through it and it's super veg focused, which is awesome. Yeah. And then uh, how has it affected the restaurant or how did the restaurant affect the book? It's, you know, it's not called Miller union, your awesome restaurant, but it's called roots of leaf. Do you find that you are finding to get ways of more vegetarian food onto the menu or is it staying the same because your guests want a certain thing? Like what's the deal with that? I, I think it's a symbiotic relationship. Um, I'm, I wouldn't have written a cookbook if I didn't have the restaurant. Got but it. the restaurant has also benefited from the book because we can sell the cookbook at the restaurant. Um, people sometimes come to Miller Union because they read the book or they might enjoy their meal and they want to know more and the servers will show them a copy of the book. And it's just a, it's a tactile, it's an extension, visual right? thing that is an extension of what we already do. Yeah, totally. So it really does, um, it is a symbiotic relationship, and I think it just helps grow our brand and our philosophy, which is, you know, cook seasonal, you eat local, like so many other chefs, but I think we, we portrayed it in a way that's very um, visually stunning and, and simply, simply presented. Yeah, it's a beautiful book if you don't have it. Yeah. I'm sure you can get one today somewhere. It's <laughs> it's on sale here in the tent. Yeah. And I just signed several copies. So Awesome. Yeah. And the second the second part of the question is um, something I have trouble selling in my restaurants and at various times I give up on it. I notice on your menu you have rabbit and quail. Two two awesome things that the the guests don't order often enough. How do they sell in your restaurants? I'm just curious. Well first I have of all extreme um, difficulty selling it. Uh both rabbit and quail are very sustainably produced, and and they regenerate themselves I know, quickly man. as I well. But I they're delicious, it. and um, and I, honestly, like I all I almost always have quail on the menu. We work with Manchester Farms. Yeah, I was going to ask. Love yeah. their love their product. It's delicious. They're big Southern Foodways Alliance totally. supporters, um, and and rabbit as well. I mean, I've been very happy to see how things like that have been received in in um, Atlanta. We have adventurous diners that are willing to surrender um, their experience over to you and let you take control. And um, it, not everybody, but you know, it's it's a big city, and so there's a lot of people that want to experience what you want to present. And you know, I think we find, you know, that there's. Rabbit's not the number one seller on the menu, I'll be honest. Yep, I hear but you. it is delicious, and we can do it in so many different ways. It's a, it's a great blank canvas for so many different um, vegetable backdrops. Yep, sure. So, um, you bring in the whole thing. 
and use all of it? We bring in the whole, and, and um, we actually take the loins and um, make them into uh, riettes. Um, we serve the hind leg and foreleg together as an entree. And sometimes we take the bellies and smoke, cure and smoke them and make rabbit belly bacon. Oh, nice. Um, more as a flavoring in a dish or yeah, in a yeah, vegetable yeah. dish, not so much small. as a feature. <laughs> right, yeah. Yeah, little rabbit yeah. belly. They're so cute. I always say the cutest animals taste the best, right? <laughs> yeah, that's fair. Um, Quail's not exactly ugly, so there's two. Yeah. There's two right there. There you go. Um, so Atlanta, let's talk about Atlanta a little bit. It's a really ethnically diverse city. Something we really need in this current era of yeah. government that we have. Yeah. Um, you've been there for a while. You grew up in Georgia. How do you see and feel that all that diversity has influenced not only the restaurant, but like your approach to food, or, you know, or has it not really? Like, there's really good Vietnamese there. There's a lot of good Latin American food there. How do you? Does that find its way in to like the arch of your your food, your cuisine? That's a really good question. Like, does ethnic food make its way into my palate? I mean, I saw the lavash on there and that kind of. Yes thing. and no. I mean, I I would say, um, you know, because we're also have a strong wine focus at our restaurant, we try to make sure that the food is going to pair sure. well with wine. So sometimes you have to be careful with, you know, hot chilies or or strong flavors, which often accompany sure. ethnic cuisine. But I certainly take cues um, from other ethnicities when it comes to food. And that's the beauty of being an American cook, is that it is a melting pot. Um, the s- southern, south, the southeast is a huge melting pot, and Atlanta is. And so it's silly to say that it wouldn't influence you either subliminally or or consciously. Yeah. Um, I mean, it has to, right? Yeah, absolutely. So I think I really feel like, um, you know, there's there it, it affects all of us as cooks because we're it's it's part of our culture now. You For know? sure. And I, and I and I embrace it. Yeah, absolutely. So let's go back to the beginning. You grew up in Savannah, is that right? Yeah, I grew up just down the coast in Savannah. So let's talk about that for a second. Like when you come to Charleston, it's kind of like coming close to home. It's kind of feels familiar here to you. Sure. I mean. Um, the, the big difference is Charleston and Savannah are very different cities. and um, Like size-wise or just Size-wise, culture-wise, and everything. But but they have the same general kind of vibe and climate and, and um, that coastal feel. Um, you know, I, I, I spent the first 18 years of my life in Savannah. I went to, you know, school there. And um, I moved to Atlanta in, in the late 80s. And I've been there ever since. And my family's no longer in Savannah either, so I do I do go there sometimes. But it's interesting because I feel more like a tourist now. But I just know yeah, right. where, I just know my way around. Yeah, right? sure. But I don't have any like as many connections there as I used to. Um, I have a few friends that I've stayed in touch with, and, and but no family there. And um, I have a house on Tybee Island, which is very relaxing. Sounds awesome. And and then um, but Charleston is a totally different experience, even though it's two hours away. By car, it feels you know it's 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 like its own little thing yeah, going on. It's an sure. exciting city. A lot of um, you know great restaurants and food culture here, and, and a lot of um, interesting work happening here. So uh, you know they both have their merits. Yeah, it's an undeniably yeah. great food city. You mentioned in your book that, and I'm embarrassed to say I don't really know what this means, but that Savannah was one of America's first planned cities. Yes. What does that mean? It means that there was actually a city plan design on before, paper like anything before they started uh, 
building. Seems like it. more cities should be that way. And uh, yeah, Atlanta is certainly not that at all. There's yeah, you wouldn't no have plan. that many peach tree roads if you yeah. really planned it out, would you? Um, Atlanta was the intersection of two railroad lines, and that's how it got started. And it just kind of grew organically from there. Yeah. But Savannah was a, definitely a planned city um, by the settlers, and, it, and they 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 created all the different squares that are so small smart. city parks, and the, a lot of the architecture is still intact. It's one of the most beautifully preserved cities on the East Coast. Um, and with SCAD being a big part of the city, they did a lot of historic preservation and have reclaimed a lot of the buildings and made them into what they used to be. And so it's really amazing what they've done. Yeah, yeah. sounds fantastic. So you go from there, and then uh, we haven't even touched on your rock and roll history. But then you it seems like your time in Paris was really influential. You weren't super chefing it out at that point but no, no, no. it probably I, had some kind of impact I'm guessing because Paris is absolutely. so inspiring to so many different creative types on so many levels I went to I moved to Atlanta to go to Georgia Tech and I studied architecture uh, my grandfather was an architect and I was also a pretty serious classical musician um, when I was uh, in high school I um, what'd you play? I played clarinet and bass clarinet I was in the Savannah Youth Symphony Orchestra and you played guitar in the band right? yeah Later, wow. but um, versatile, and uh, I I played I played classical music, and I was I was classically trained. I had a private tutor, um, took it very seriously. I almost went to conservatory, but at the last minute got accepted to tech and decided to check it out and see what it was like. Cool. I figured I could always go back to music school if I wanted to, and um, it was set me off on a different path. And I I studied in Paris for a year, uh, my final year of design school. And lived alone in the um, in an apartment in the Marais um, on the on the it's a terrible right neighborhood. Bank. <laughs> uh, it was incredible. It's and, awesome. And I, and I and I that's where I really learned about how to a little more about seasonality. As a sure. young fellow, I was going to the the market on my street and buying you know beautiful curly leaf spinach and Absolutely. and, and um, you know gorgeous mushrooms and, and whatever was in season the so this spring all before cherries you were and, like super hardcore yeah. Oh, yeah. And heading I, down that path right and I, at the time I was vegetarian so I was eating a lot more you know from the market and, and um, I was afraid of like I didn't know how to really I didn't understand how to cook meat I didn't understand where it was right. coming from and I, I just had a caution about it which later I realized that it was an instinctual thing because I didn't know where it had come from I was suspicious and I think that's a actually a good thing for people to think a little bit more about now as a restaurant owner and a chef i know exactly where all my proteins come from i'm usually friends with the farmer or have some kind of relationship it's the way it should be and so it's not i don't buy factory farmed anything you right. know I, I i work with um you know smaller producers and there's a level of trust there that they're doing the right thing and and i think that and I instinctually was vegetarian at the time because I didn't trust the meat industry. Right. Now I, now there's a little more traceability and transparency. And I a think America's more, made progress in that yeah, regard. Yeah, yeah. So let's talk about your architectural background and then building a restaurant, which, from a chef perspective and from an architectural perspective, must be really helpful. And then I also talk about the name Miller Union. I don't really know what that's all about. Sure. Well, I'll start with that. Um, Miller Union is actually the name of the stockyards that existed right. on that block um, between the 1880s and the 1930s. And um, it's interesting from a vegetarian standpoint. Yeah, <laughs> it was uh, Atlanta's meatpacking district, that whole west side of, okay. of Atlanta, near actually not far from Tech Campus. 
And um, it became later in the 40s, 50s, 60s, it was more of an industrial neighborhood with like um, storage warehouses and auto repair places and things like that. Okay. And um, it wasn't until much later after the turn of this century where the area was kind of the last frontier and um, I think Anne Quatrano was really one of the pioneers that and Taqueria del Sol um, two restaurants that opened up on the west side early on and um, we we moved on to a little street Brady Avenue it's just three blocks long definitely off the beaten path but in the right neighborhood right for expansion and growth we we were considered pioneers at the time and now everything it's around us up is, around you, is right? blowing up yeah, totally. we, we were just like the right place right time really great neighborhood that supports local businesses yeah you know restaurants are doing something different you know people like the vibe and feel of the place and we have you know our killer wine list and bar program and yep. so we just we were definitely right place right time um and um what was the other part of the question Miller design, Union. Design. Um, yeah, being an architect. Yeah, yeah. The we moved into a, a vanilla shell space that was really just one big warehouse, and we wanted it to feel cozy. So, what we did was um, we actually broke the space up into several spaces, and made it kind of more like a hallway with rooms coming off the side, like a kind of a main living room and a little library filling room, then an open double height window room. Totally. And it just we made it little vignettes. Almost. Yeah, we broke it up so that we could kind of have a little more versatility with the space. Right. It's great because if somebody wants For to book private a events, private yeah, party, yeah. we can curtain something off. You know, if we want to, if they want to book the patio, yeah. we can do that. Did you get really involved in the design? You weren't the architect uh, of this. No, place. I was not. Um, I was able to speak their language and, right, and right. help interpret a little right. bit. Um, and, but yeah, we all contributed to the, the look and the feel of the restaurant, which is really kind of like a mix of farmhouse chic and industrial. Yeah, I've only eaten at the bar. Mashed up together. I, I loved it. I really yeah. enjoyed my time there. I'll have to eat in one of these rooms next time. Yeah. Oh, and I just see one of my favorite producers is here, Anson Mills. It's just here st- taking some photographs. Fantastic. We were talking about producers that we know and trust and love. Absolutely. They're, Absolutely. they're amazing. Yeah. So let's talk about another iconic southern ingredient, the peanut, and your book, and when's it coming out, and what's yeah. the approach, and how big is it? So um, that's a personal question. Um <laughs> No, uh, this, is a, short, this is a PG channel. Right? Short Stack Editions, um, they do these oh, awesome yeah, yeah, yeah. single subject yeah, cookbooks. Yeah, yeah. Um, Are they still tied up with the string and stuff? So they just started working with Dovetail Press. Okay, I'm one of the first author, authors to come out on Dovetail, so they're not going to be hand sewn in somebody's right. living room anymore. That was beautiful, but slightly insane. Which was insane, a great yeah. idea to start, but they got very tired of it. They had lots yeah. of pinpricks in their fingers. Yeah, totally, totally. I you know, it didn't work. They were just getting a little tired. But um, it's great. It's This means wider distribution of a great product. Sure. Um, they have a really diverse selection of authors. Each one does a single subject and explores that ingredient Love from it. start to finish in 50 pages or less. How many recipes? 20 to 25 recipes, depending on how wordy you are. Yeah. And, um, it's such a versatile uh, ingredient, yeah. too. So, um, yeah, it was a really fun Do you lot with green peanuts? I love I did, green peanuts. I did worked with green peanuts, peanut oil, peanut flour, yeah. um, dried peanuts, roasted peanuts, yeah, yeah, yeah. oiled peanuts, peanut, peanut butter. peanut flour to work with? I've never done that. Um, I mean, you, you can do so much with it. And 
I tested recipes all summer last year, and I think I probably ate more peanuts <laughs> this past year yeah. than I, my copper levels must have been through the roof. Right, my right, copper right. and my niacin, where they were like yeah. out of there. Um, but yeah, it's it's a great ingredient. We're Georgia's the largest producer of the peanuts in the country, so it only makes sense that a Georgia yeah. chef absolutely should do that uh, do that work. And it was actually a subsection in roots leaf that got pulled at the last minute. So I had some material to start, and oh, I cool. I went to Shortstack and pitched it to them. Yeah, yeah. Hey guys, I've got some half of a chapter on peanuts already started. You want to pick this up for sure? And they did. So sure. um, it's a, worked out for everybody. That's awesome. I look forward to seeing it. Yeah, it, I, I see that as an overarching theme in everything you do. There's like, <clears throat> like the book is late. Your your first book, Roots of Leaf, is laid out so succinct and clear, and the restaurant is so clearly defined and laid out and to the point. Does that just come organically to you? Do you think you've always been that way, or is it just a culmination of your efforts? Or everything is so focused and dialed in and just right. So, how how do you think that came to be? I I think that um, communication to me is really important, and I'm always trying to find a theme and and dial it in. And so, part of communicating is what you put on the plate, and I, a lot of the messaging that I'm giving is, you know, like I said to you before we started, I don't want to manipulate the hell out of something. Sure. I want you to actually be able to tell that you're eating a radish or you're eating a carrot or that you're eating the beets with their stems and their tops all in one right. dish. Right. And, you know, that to me is just a sort of a reverence for the ingredients. But I, uh, you know, tinker with it just enough to where I feel like it's shining and it's showing off some of its best properties, but also not too far removed from its original state. And I think that's a big part of the communication for me about food is that it doesn't have to be, you know, carved into the shape of a swan to be right, chef sure, produced. Sure. It can be like, sure. you know, you just washed it and put some salt and butter on anything. it. anything. Yeah. <laughs> like we talked about the radish and butter sandwich. Yeah. Yeah. That's one of my favorite things to eat. Like I want one right now. Yeah. Totally. <laughs> totally. Um, all right, so what? how much longer are you going to get to stay in town? Uh, I have a couple of events um, left to do. I did a dinner at Wild Olive last night with, with um, Jacques Larson. It's fantastic, very um, fun, very rustic, a lot of vegetables. We, we really, like, ordered in a, a it was ton all of... all vegetarian? T- no, we did proteins too, but yeah. we thought a lot about the vegetable components, and we yeah. waited till the last minute to write the menu because we were waiting to see what was coming in last minute from the farm. So that awesome. was a lot of fun. And then uh, I have a, um, a demo at the Cinematic Lounge in a little while this afternoon. Oh, and King? Yep, or I'm going to make some s- uh, snapper brandad, so salted snapper oh, cool. instead of salt cod. Did you do that yourself? Um, yeah. Oh, cool. Yep. And I, actually, every, um, every Christmas... We close for several days, and whatever fish we are serving at the time, I'll bury it in salt and, and uh, later on rehydrate it and turn it into brandad as a special. So I don't lose any money on, on yeah, the fish sure. that would have gone bad. You do it garlic and milk, traditional, straight up? Um, I rehydrate it in water first and then cook it in milk with um, thyme and bay. And, and uh, I do a little bit of 
aromatics like um, black peppercorn and allspice and clove, which is in some recipes very traditional. And like then, in there or like sachet and pull it out? I just throw them in the pot because what you're going to do later is pull the pick the fish apart into and and like crumble it between your fingers. Yeah. So if there's any spices floating around, you just pick it just off. Pick it like off. I take the skin off, take the fat off as I'm cleaning. You still it. use potato, right? Potatoes, rusted potatoes. And I'm confit, garlic, and olive oil, and then mash that up and add it in. I also do a little bit of creme fraiche, which is not necessarily traditional, but it actually lightens it up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Kind of like in the same way that dairy lightens mashed potatoes. Totally. Um, it's really one of my favorite uh, little winter or spring snacks. Um, I was able to put some green garlic in it this time, which is exciting. <laughs> right. And um, Odd global yeah, warming, right? So I'm going to serve yeah. that up around 4 o'clock at the Seamatic Lounge. Cool. And yeah. I have a lunch tomorrow with um, Michelle Weaver from Charleston Grill and uh, Jamie Simpson from uh, Chef's Garden. Oh, man. Kelly Fields from Willa Jean. Beautiful stuff. And, um, and myself. And we are doing, um, we're doing a luncheon, uh, mostly vegetable-driven, at River Oaks. It's an old plantation that's oh, cool. now an event space. Cool. I have my first... Uh, Charleston plantation experience last night out in um, Mount Pleasant. Uh-huh. And I also had my first experience with these little gnats that fly around. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. Does anybody know about these things? It's absolutely terrible. Yeah. And then finally got cold enough and they went away. But right it, around it, sunset, right? Oh, my God. It was yeah. awful. It was awful. The and the, the kitchen was Sand outside gnats. and the whole nine yards. Yeah. and. It was such a pain. But, uh, well, you should be here for love bug season. What is that? Does anybody know the love bugs? Um, they swarm and they ta- attach themselves together and mate and fly around as a, as a double pair, flying around and mating at the same time. They're oh, everywhere. they don't attack you, though. Like, they'll, they'll cover your car as you're <laughs> driving down a country road. They'll, just, you'll, they'll splatter all over your car. It's pretty wow. gross. <laughs> yeah, it's like one week a year or something like that. Yeah, wow. I grew up in Savannah. We we had sand gnats and love bugs there too. So <laughs> what that's, was that's your... the name of my next book: Sand Gnats and Love Bugs. <laughs> How to cook in, the insects yeah. you hate. <laughs> Real sustainable eating. Right. Yeah, let's talk about what. What are some of your, if any? Like, I, I don't have a ton of like family traditions, but what was what was some of those. Ingredients you know, uh, and traditions in Savannah growing for, up. For us, a low country boil is always a um, awesome. traditional way to feed a crowd. If you have a, if you have a, um, you know, house at the beach or whatever, um, and you have 12, 15 people there, it's similar to what they do here. Yeah, you just get you get uh, a bunch of fresh sweet corn, some new, always new potatoes. Um, I put peppers and onions in mine. A very old bay laden broth. Right on. Um, you can do crab, shrimp. Um, there's usually some smoked sausage in there. And, it, and then it's all about laying the newspaper down on the table. Right. Um, you know, you're going to get your hands dirty. Right. Peeling. You, you always cook the shrimp in the shell. Or crab, you know, you're going to have to so pick it out. There's so much better that way. Yeah, and the, oh. and the shells and the crab shells flavor the broth. Um, do you guys drink it, or is this the vehicle to cook? No, it? that's the thing about a low country boy. You don't drink the just, broth. It's yeah, just yeah. merely it's uh, so strong, right? I mean, some people might, but I, I, we never did. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. It's it's just a vehicle There's for so much flavor in there probably, right? to impart into the food. But then Got you it. just you strain it. Yeah, yeah. You know, and I usually yeah. put a little bit of white wine in there or beer. Um, 
I've done hot pepper vinegar in it before. Yep. I mean, you can kind of just whatever is around, you know, um, lot, but definitely a lot of dried spices, like all those flavors of Old Bay, which consequently is really, if you look at the ingredients, Old Bay is a form of a curry. It's got oh, wow. a lot of similar ingredients to most curries. And so, um, yeah, interesting. It's the Southeast or it's the Southeast yeah, yeah, curry. Yeah. It's really technically made in Baltimore, I think. Um, yeah. and, uh, another tradition in the winter is an oyster roast. Um, we would often gather like at a, at a friend's house if they lived on, on the water and, um, you know, hang out on the dock or near the dock and, and they would take burlap bags, soak them in water and put it on the grill, uh, put the oysters on top and another burlap bag and shut the lid. Oh, wow. and, then oh, you, and then you so can steam. pick them. You steam. pick them up, but they're grilled and steamed yeah, at yeah, the same yeah. time. And you, you, steam then and you throw the yeah. you throw the oysters down again on a newspaper covered table. Yeah, and everybody's got a knife. Do they There's pop open or they don't necessarily pop open? No, you got to you got to shuck them open. Okay, but they're easier because they've been steamed. Yeah, 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 yeah. Some of them open a little bit, and then for both of these events, low country boil and an oyster roast, it's all about your dipping sauces. I was just getting ready to say, like, what are you so, doing so with it when low it comes country out? boil? You got to have your um, butter cocktail sauce. Okay. And I always make my own. I actually use ketchup as the base and add lemon juice, prepared horseradish, and a lot of black pepper and hot yeah. sauce. I also like it with Alabama white sauce or uh, garlic mayonnaise for the potatoes and the corn. Um, and then for the oysters, usually have some drawn butter, hot sauce, crackers, um, horseradish, lemons. It's simple. And yeah. cold beer. It's always cold yeah, beer. Right. Like a canned beer right. with your koozie. Or that's, rosé. That's traditional, like, <laughs> oyster rice in the South. Um, awesome. And then another thing, uh, Savannah red rice is a, a right. very traditional. Um, it's kind of George's paella, tomato-based. Okay. Usually has shrimp and sausage again. A lot of times the Holy Trinity, onion, pepper, celery. Um, traditionally made in cast iron skillet. But when we were growing up in the Savannah school system in Chatham County, Red rice was actually one of the vegetables that they would offer as like of course it's your a side. Red yeah. rice was a vegetable. It's like mac and cheese is a vegetable. Yeah, exactly. Right? Red rice, mac and cheese are both vegetables right. in the South. Totally. So, yeah. Totally. Um, all right. Question all right. from the audience. Is that what that is? Uh, no, it's just it's, it's uh, inside radio lingo. Okay. All right, so... It's like time to wrap. <laughs> yeah, we're going to take a break. and We'll be right back with Chef Michael Toscano. Thank you very much, Chef. I appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Big Green Egg, the world's largest producer of ceramic charcoal grills. In business since 1974, they've transformed ancient cooking vessels into modern-day masterpieces. Today, they sell seven sizes of the egg, as well as hundreds of accessories designed to make your cooking fun, entertaining, and delicious. Often copied, but never equaled. The Big Green Egg is the ultimate cooking experience. Learn more at biggreenegg.com. This episode is also brought to you by Springer Mountain Farms. Over 300 family farmers raising birds in Georgia's Blue Ridge Mountains. Many of them are second and even third generation. They're committed to doing things the right way. Springer was one of the first poultry companies to forego the use of antibiotics, and they've embraced other humane practices, too. In fact, they were the first poultry company to earn the American Humane Association seal of approval. Learn more at springermountainfarms.com.